In the book of Exodus is where we find ourselves and in chapter 34. So if you'd turn in your, as my son likes to say, analog Bible or <laughs> navigate in your digital Bible. Of course, in the future, you could just have this information uploaded and then we could uh, spend more time in the cafe. But anyway, <laughs> Exodus 34 in the meantime, we're doing this the old-fashioned way where you listen and the Holy Spirit teaches. The topic in this chapter, Moses speaks with God and his face shines from having been in his presence. So the title of our message is The Shining. Let's have a word of prayer. Well, it precedes the movie, so don't worry about it. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this text. Uh, what an unusual situation, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would share with us how it applies to us, uh, that we'd see ourselves in the text in a really glorious way. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. America's favorite dad, Homer Simpson, is the safety officer for the Springfield nuclear plant owned by Mr. Burns. It affords the writers lots of comic material. In one episode, Homer is standing behind an x-ray machine, and his insides are glowing green. The doctor tells Marge, what you are seeing here is the radioactive dye flowing through your husband's circulatory system. But then the nurse comes into screen with a large needle and says, but doctor, I haven't injected the dye yet. So you get, he's just glowing from the radiation of the nuclear plant. Now, you may not glow green, but certain medical procedures will make you radioactive. My oldest brother is being treated for prostate cancer by having radioactive seeds planted directly in the prostate. He told me that the doctor gave him a card to show at airports and other venues because he will emit enough radiation from the treatment to set off radiation alarms. A lot of people are radioactive enough to trigger alarms for dirty bombs. One source said, and I quote, Nearly 60,000 people a day in the United States undergo treatment or tests that leave tiny amounts of radioactive material in their bodies, according to the Society of Nuclear Medicine. It is not enough to hurt them or anyone else, but it is enough to trigger radiation alarms for up to three months. Not enough to hurt anyone? That's not always true, according to a study of patients treated with things radioactive, and again I quote, about 7% of outpatients said they had gone directly to a hotel after their treatment against doctors' wishes. Hotel stays are a particular concern since the patient can expose other guests and service workers. In fact, in 20, uh, 2007, an Illinois hotel was contaminated after linens from a patient's room were washed together with other bedding. The incident would have probably gone unreported, but for nuclear plant workers who later stayed in the same hotel and set off radiation alarms when they reported back to work. And so somebody who had had a radiation treatment medically slept in that hotel. Their sheets got washed with thousands of other sheets. Sometime later, by chance, nuclear power workers had a conference there. And when they went back to work, they tested positive for uh, radioactivity. So I'm sure it's all normal. I'm looking for glowers right now. But. Our story in Exodus took place before radiation alarms, but Moses does glow, and his shining is at first quite alarming to the Israelites. Look at verse 29. Now it was so when Moses came down from the mount uh, with the two tablets of stone in his hand, 
Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul would refer to this shining to illustrate the superior blessings we enjoy in the church compared to Israel under this old covenant. He said in 2 Corinthians 3, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So I'll organize my comments about this around two points. Number one, under the old covenant, you experienced an afterglow of God's glory. Number two, under the new covenant, you experience the always glow of God's glory. Let's take a look at the afterglow, beginning in verse one. Oh, by the way, for $99, you can get a radioactive glow-in-the-dark figure of Homer Simpson on Amazon.com, but you better hurry. There's only three left in stock the last time I checked. There was only four ever manufactured. But anyway, I couldn't find a Moses figure. I was hoping to. But there is a Jesus figure with glow-in-the-dark hands. It comes with five loaves and two fishes, so you can replicate the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Growing up sort of Catholic, I had a crucifix in my bedroom with a glow-in-the-dark Jesus on it. It bothered me that Jesus' glow so quickly faded once the lights were off. Every night it was a race to get to sleep before Jesus did. I wanted to think that he was still watching over me as my nightlight, and so if he went to sleep before I did, I was in trouble in terms of the monster in the closet, that kind of a thing. Which all goes to show, think about what you're doing to small children and the way that this affects them some 50 years later. Anyway, let's see Moses get his glow on, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. The original tablets of the Ten Commandments had been thrown down and broken by Moses when he returned to the camp of Israel and found them worshiping the golden calf in a drunken orgy. After Moses interceded for them and the Israelites repented, God determined he would renew his covenant with them and give them the Ten Commandments on stone. In Lamentations, we read this. This is a famous set of verses that most of you have somewhere in your house. It says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah wrote those words, and evidently he thought we deserve to be consumed every morning. That's the part I camp out on. Uh, It's not a matter of low self-esteem, but of high God esteem and of having a proper understanding of ourselves. And uh, we do deserve to be consumed every morning, but God instead is great in faithfulness and renews his mercies to us. Verse four, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. No mention of Joshua accompanying Moses partway, not this time. The entire area was declared off limits to man and beast, and that's because this trip, God was going to reveal more of his glory 
to Moses. Verse five, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The cloud was the way God had been manifesting himself to Israel. You remember he was a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. In the last chapter, Moses had requested to see God's glory in a greater way, to see something more than just the cloud. God was going to accommodate Moses as much as he could during this visit. Verse 6, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Last chapter, God explained to Moses that he could not see his full glory and live. God said he would put Moses in the cleft of the rock and cover his eyes as he passed by. Moses would get a glimpse of, he said, God's back. And that word for back, not a word of anatomy. It means afterward or afterglow. And so he would see the glory of God after it passed by. We see here that God is merciful. That means he doesn't give us what we deserve. We frequently want people to get what they deserve, don't we? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Some people need to get what they deserve from a justice standpoint. Uh, But God does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he is gracious, giving us what we don't deserve. Uh, It would behoove us all as a philosophy of life to think, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so when someone is falling or failing or something terrible happens, grace is what makes the difference in my life, God's grace, which is sufficient. I could be that person, but I'm not, thanks to the Lord. And then long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. We make much of long-suffering here. I love this word because, as I've told you before, the real problem people have with God, the God of the Bible, isn't evolution, it isn't creation, it isn't some of these other things that we do need to be schooled on and be up to speed on. It's that he allows suffering. And the great question is the problem of pain. Why does a, an almighty God of love allow suffering? And the answer to that, the one word answer is long-suffering. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He is long-suffering. And that means as he waits for more people to get saved so that they are not lost eternally in a uh, conscious torment in hell, the sin and the suffering of the world continue. And so God can end the suffering, and he will, but his long-suffering waits for more to get saved. And so what a great word that is. Abounding in goodness and truth reminds me of his promise that all things work together for the good that God will, uh, not that all things are good, but they will work together in God's scheme and we will see the truth of that either in this life, certainly in the next. Says he keeps mercy for thousands and that means for thousands of generations. God makes himself available to all at all times. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and by no means clearing the guilty, that should be read as one thought because clearing the guilty is better translated No person is innocent by or of himself. In other words, God takes the initiative to save and he does it through grace, forgiving sinners on the basis of his own atoning sacrifice. Now this last phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations, don't let that throw you. We've read this before in Exodus and when we did, it ended with these words, 
of those who hate him, chapter 20, verse 5. And so if you hate God, that is, you disobey him and rebel against him, uh, then what you do is going to affect the generations that follow. Uh, Your upbringing of your children is certainly not going to be godly, and it's going to affect them, and it's going to affect their children and their children until finally there is a generation that turns to the Lord. And we see this happen in the book of Judges with the nation of Israel. There'll be a godly generation followed by an apathetic generation followed by an apostate generation, and then God will raise up a judge when they cry out to him, and the cycle happens again. And so that's all this is saying. Then in verse 8, so Moses uh, made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And then he said, if I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Uh, The folks over at the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, claim that Captain Marvel is going to be by far their most super superhero. God is the original doer of marvels, and he said he did them and does them for Israel. And I would submit to you that the entire history of the Jewish people is an ongoing marvel. And anybody who really looks at Israel and the Jewish people has to be in awe and wonder at God's marvelous works. In our modern era, these people who were almost exterminated in Nazi Germany nevertheless uh, were born in a day in their ancient homeland, May 14, 1948. And they immediately faced overwhelming odds from enemies on all sides, and they always have and from that point until today, but they are thriving as a nation. All of this when most of them don't know Jesus as their Messiah. God is constantly doing marvels in the nation of Israel. And so this wasn't just a promise for the Exodus. It's a promise for all time. Verse 11 Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hittite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And so with the pagan religious objects removed, there would be less temptation to worship any other god. Just as an aside, if something tempts you to sin, get rid of it. Dismiss it from your life so that you are less likely to fall into sin. Making a treaty with idolaters would lead to involvement in their sacrificial communal meals. It would encourage intermarrying with their daughters, many of whom were spiritual and or physical prostitutes to their gods. Now, a list of people here is named. These are especially wicked individuals whom God had for 400 years reached out to with uh, salvation. They had rejected him and they were involved in the most wicked, terrible practices you can imagine. 
including child sacrifice. All of their religious rituals were sexual in nature, and not just sexual, but grossly immoral sexual in nature. And so people object. They think, well, God wanted them to kill everybody. No, not everybody, but these people, yeah, because they refused to repent and they were absolutely wicked to the core. There were a lot of other people groups and nations and tribes whom Israel had dealings with. God didn't make a decree that the Jews were to kill all Gentiles. Uh, They were to coexist with Gentiles and lead Gentiles to the knowledge of the one true God of the Bible. Then he says in verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. I've been pointing out in our studies that there were genuine demonic entities at work. A molded or carved idol represented a real principality, power, or authority, a ruler of the darkness of this world. I cite what we've seen in Exodus before, the magicians of Egypt who could do wonders. They could throw down a staff and it could become a snake. It wasn't David Blaine, you know, it wasn't sleight of hand, it wasn't a card trick. It was genuine demonic power. And so when these, you know, we talk about idolatry and we only think about the object itself, the 1964 Malibu ragtop with her shifter and 327. Uh, I mean, just in case you wanted to get me a parting gift. No, I'm just kidding. Sort of. But anyway, my friend Steve Kassler had that car and man, it was a piece of junk, but I love that car. And a fully restored one, that'd be the bomb. But I don't particularly think there's any demons involved in that car. And so we think, when we think of idolatry, we think these people were just worshiping a stone image. That image they understood represented a real, dynamic, demonic force. And so uh, we need to be very, very careful about these things. God next gave Moses Israel's annual calendar, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time in the month Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, but the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, if you're new to these studies in Exodus, you're going to feel a little disappointed by our lack of commentary on this set of verses because we've already discussed these feasts and the Sabbath and why we as Gentiles are not and never were obligated to keep it. I will pause to comment on the young goat and its mother's milk but only to say that no one knows why God required this. No one knows. There's no solid answer to this. Lots of speculation. Sometimes people look at these things and they think, oh, God must have known there was a health issue or a nutritional issue or something like that. No. Some of this stuff is just because Israel was to be separate from Gentiles. And it gave them these sort of, from our point of view, strange dietary regulations weren't for health, 
They were for separation so that people would say, why don't you do this? And they would say, because we follow the Lord God of Israel and he has commanded us. And this is an easy thing to do. And so we do it. And then they were able to share. Now, just because Israel never really shared the Lord with anybody else because they became ingrown and prejudicial doesn't mean it wasn't their uh, duty and privilege to do that. And that God, I think just some of these things, they only make sense uh, to evangelism and, and not in something physical. And so don't think, that, well, you know, when people come to you and say, oh, this, this Old Testament diet, this is how you're supposed to eat. Yeah, no, that's not true. Uh, uh, because there's a lot of other stuff that those same people just ignore in the Old Testament because they don't want to do it. And, and so it's, the Old Testament diet, it kept Israel separate so that others would ask about the Lord. Verse 27, then the Lord said to Moses, write these words for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights and neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote, on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Don't we read elsewhere it was God's finger that wrote the Ten Commandments? And so is this a contradiction? No, it's not. God himself wrote the Ten Commandments. The words that God instructed Moses to write were these words, it says, which he spoke in the preceding verses. Remember, God gave Moses lots of information other than the Ten Commandments. He gave him the plans for the tabernacle and its service. And so this rewriting of the Ten Commandments on newly repaired slabs that was done by God's own hand. Now we notice that Moses fasted 40 days. A 40-day fast is possible, but not without water. This was miraculous. And so God sustained Moses 40 days without food or water. Verse 29, so it was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. This is the first recorded afterglow. Now, afterglow is a name commonly given to a time after the regular church service ends when believers stick around to get deeper into worship. In charismatic and Pentecostal churches, it's a time when the exercise of certain gifts of the Holy Spirit is encouraged. We've done that. We do that. But right now, we're doing something I'd call a mid-glow on Wednesday night uh, where we pause and pray and open it up uh, for different things to happen. And so, you know... That's a cool thing, but I'm not thinking of that in any way. That's not the kind of afterglow that this is in the time of Moses. Moses' afterglow was nothing like that. He was glowing because of the glorious covenant that he had received from the Lord. And we're going to see in a moment that our new covenant in the church age is superior in every way. But if you were back in the day, you'd be blessed beyond measure to participate in the tabernacle and the feasts and the Sabbath. What God gave to Israel was glorious, especially at the time. No one had ever worshipped God as intimately and as profoundly up until that time. Israel was a privileged people indeed. The Apostle Paul said of Israel in Romans 9, to whom pertained the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. We so often only think of Israel as falling short and failing that we forget how privileged and how blessed they were. And you know who else falls short and fails? Well, read almost any New Testament letter and you'll see that it's corrective of some error among Christians in the church. 
Jesus' letters to the churches, the seven churches of the Revelation, are mostly letters of rebuke or correction. And so we want to be careful looking back at Israel and saying how far short they fell. They fell short, but they had much less revelation than we do. Uh, Just look to yourself and be thankful that you're not consumed every morning, but that God's mercies are new. Let's make a couple of observations from our verses. First, we said that Israel was to completely avoid the idolatrous practices of the Canaanites and not to intermarry with them. In their own way, they were to be in the world of Gentiles, but not of the world. And so are we, in the world to effect it for Jesus, and, uh, but not of it, being drawn away from him by it. And so are we instead being affected by the world detrimentally? Each of us must answer that for ourselves, but we need to at least ask it of ourselves. Second, even though it's the old covenant, it's hard to improve on God's proclamation of his characteristics that we read. He's merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, forgiving, iniquity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the question here is, is this how you experience God? Is there one or more of those traits that you cannot reconcile to your circumstances? Then we need to seek him in that area because God said, this is who I am, this is my nature. And sometimes we come to God and we say, God, I don't see how this is loving. I don't see how this is merciful. I don't see the grace in this. How is this long-suffering? And, and yet God says, no, that's who I am. And so you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Figure it out, um, and I will reveal myself to you. Secondly, in verses 29 through 35, under the new covenant, you experience the always glow of God's glory. I made up that word myself, the always glow. You can, uh, if you have Pentecostal friends, next time they tell you you have, uh, they were at their afterglow, you say, well, we do something similar, but it's an always glow. And then just walk away, mic drop and walk away. (laughs) What can a person say to that? Would you rather have an afterglow or an always glow? You'd have to always glow. Anyway, okay. It's like the third word in my life I've made up and I can't remember the other two. But anyway, (laughs) Moses' face faded over time, just like my Jesus crucifix, But Paul says we grow in glow as we walk with the Lord. And so verse 29, now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. This is a very different descent than the first one we read about last week. The tablets were intact, the Israelites had waited patiently and all would be rewarded by a reminder of the glory of God. Verse 30, so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Now, the verb for shone is related to the noun for horn. The Latin Vulgate translation of Exodus confused these two, which led to the representation in European medieval art of Moses having horns. You ever seen those statues of Moses or those pictures where he has devil horns coming? Well, they don't do that, but I was trying to be funny, which none of you cared about, so I'll quit doing that from this point on, nothing but serious stuff. Anyway, that's why. Misunderstanding of the word for shown. We sometimes joke about people glowing who've been exposed to radiation, but if you ever saw a person actually glowing, I think you'd be freaked out and want to have some personal space between them. One of the recommendations for us, for our greeters, is to not be glowing green on Sunday morning. Yeah, I know. It's, 
some, some material you just have to try. <laughs> then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Seeing Moses glowing, they skedaddled out of there, but when he called to them, they realized that this was a God thing, that he was glowing with this afterglow uh, uh, of having been with the Lord. And then in verse 32, afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. So he gives them a debriefing, bringing them up to speed on the plans to build the tabernacle and such. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again, and he went, uh, until he went in to speak with him. So whenever Moses spoke with God, he took the veil off, and he kept it off until he had finished telling the people what God had said. When Moses finished speaking, he put a veil over his face. Now, this odd procedure turns out to be an illustration whose meaning would not be revealed until centuries later by the Apostle Paul. He said, Moses put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. In other words, it was to, they didn't want to portray the glory of the Lord as something that was fading away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so the idea is that the Old Covenant, glorious, but it would one day fade away. It was temporary. It wasn't permanent. It was the shadow, not the substance. And I'm not thinking that the Israelites could actually get that from the limited information they had, but Paul looks back and he says, yeah, this is what was going on with that veil. And now if you're an Israelite, it's like there's a veil on your heart keeping you from understanding the glory of God until you come to Jesus Christ and then you receive God's glory in a new and marvelous way. The Apostle Paul then makes this remarkable statement, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As a believer who is in Christ looks into the mirror of God's word, he or she sees the glory of the Lord Jesus as it is revealed there. The indwelling Spirit of the Lord utilizes the word to transform us day by day to be more like Jesus. Instead of a fading glory, ours is to be a growing in glory. Theologically speaking, we are no longer people who experience a fading afterglow. We experience the always glow as he who began this good work in us has promised to complete it. And so moment by moment and day by day and year by year, the Lord says he is making you more, not less, like Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you are then predestined to be like Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says one day we will awake in his likeness. And so that's the idea here, that the new covenant, the law of God written on our hearts, the law of love, being born again with Jesus as our Savior, uh, being in Christ, this is something we are constantly growing in and getting a greater glory. It's not something that fades away. 
We experience it by beholding Jesus in the mirror. And you know what? The idea Paul had is we become like what we see in that mirror. So this is why it's super important to have the right picture of Jesus. We read some of the characteristics today, grace, mercy, long-suffering, forgiveness, those kinds of things. We need to see Jesus exactly as he's portrayed in the Bible and understand that in all of its fullness because that's who we're going to become more and more like. And so the idea is that we would keep on glowing. Amen?